If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 19. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 19. The Word of God says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of, a, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. One sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. As far the reading of God's word. Brother Wayne, will you pray for the preaching of the word? Father, we thank you so much again for your goodness and your mercies. Uh, thank you so much for this day that you've uh, set aside for us to come together and um, just kind of put everything else aside and focus on you. Thank you for this time of work that we've had, the, the time of prayer, the time of reading, and we're now coming for your word. I first want to pray for our pastor. I pray, God, that uh, in his weakness you may be strong. Yes. I pray that you would push him to even lean more on you today, Lord. Yes. That it would be your Holy Spirit that works through him and, and teaches us, Lord. And, and Lord, I pray for us. Uh, we as a people are just, we're so entertained. Right. And we're so distracted through the week. I pray, God, that 
today you would help us, Lord, in our weakness, Lord, be made strong. Somehow move through your Holy Spirit in our hearts, Lord, that we would focus on this message, that you would change our lives today, yes. and help our pastor as he contrasts these two, uh, these two beasts, this, this, this supper where we would be consumed, Lord. <clears throat> Our sin that should consume us. But this call that goes out to all of us who attend the matters of our, of our Lord Christ. Lord, most of all in my heart today, motivate me to be, go out in the highways and the byways and to, to, to beckon those to come to yeah, Lord. Good. Use this message to the, today, Lord, to do that in my heart. Yes. Lord, we're small today, small in number, but Lord, I know you can do a great, wonderful work today. This is under your providence today that our pastor does not feel well. This is your providence. You are going to use this somehow today, God. This, this under providence that there's so few here today, Lord, I don't know why, but God, you're going to use that somehow today for something special, for your yes. word to go forth, Lord. I believe that. I thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So I told you last week that this particular text is set up in the Revelation as a chiasm all of its own. It's got an A, B, A structure. At the center is uh, the section verses 11 through 16. This universal conquest of Christ over all things. And then flanking either side of that is our two suppers. The first is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The second is the, the great supper of God. The first, as I told you last week, is this Edenic uh, fellowship of communion with God. It's the blessed communion that we've been looking for and waiting for since the beginning. It's what God has always intended for his elect. That latter supper, though, is a, a judgment feasting upon the bodies, the flesh, the souls of those who are damned, those reprobate souls who reject Christ and are consequently condemned to eternal damnation for their rejection. And right there in the middle of it all is Christ. He is the dividing line between this marriage feast and fellowship with God and eternal condemnation away from the presence of God. Now, last week we got started by spending the whole of our time uh, just trying to understand the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, what it is and when it, I believe, it began and what, are, what is its meaning for us. And this week, we're going to get started with the great supper of God before finally coming to that very center of this vision of the triumph of Christ over all things. So let's just start here with the great supper of God. It's the second A section in this chiasm, if you can visualize that in your minds. It starts in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. So this is that second supper. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. The kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured 
and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In this final part of the chiasm, chiasm, it shows uh, the result of Christ's judgment. It is a violent, bloody uh, vision. It, It ends with the ground quite literally Uh, being littered with the rotting, putrefying corpses of of the damned. And the beasts of the earth are literally invited to feast upon uh, the rotting flesh. It's it's gruesome language. It really is when you sit there and consider it. A lot of people have trouble with this part of the scriptures. But in its historic context, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. For the Jews, in light of passages like Deuteronomy 28, 26, this is part of God's giving the curses for the covenant. For the Jews to die and go unburied, to have one's body consumed by the beasts of the field, was to die a, a cursed death. It was to die in shame, to die in disgrace, and to die without the hope of eternal life with God. So this language, even if we just take it symbolically, if, that's, if that is the only meaning that this text has, if it's just symbolism to give us insight into the spiritual world, into redemption, to what God is doing for us, it communicates the stark reality of the impending and eternal shame and punishment that is coming upon the wicked, that's coming upon those who reject salvation in Jesus Christ alone. The language here of having your flesh consumed and having no hope of eternal life is very vivid for its readers. And of course, this vision of judgment is not purely literary symbolism. It is that, um, but it's not all that it is. This judgment was also, we've been sharing with you from the beginning, it was also physically displayed in the world. God is writing this revelation to his church, to the elect, to believers who know that his judgment is coming But to Israel itself, this covenantal people who put Christ on trial, who's crucified him, God is giving visible signs of the judgment in the very earth in which they live. And so all of these things are being worked out historically as well. So although this language, symbolically speaking, does have this broader uh, significance of signifying to us, to you and to me, the final judgment of all the wickedness and all of the evil and all of the sin and all of creation on the final day. We're heading there in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 25. Must not miss the immediate historical application for those first century readers. This literally happened in history in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple. And Josephus, I'm going to read you some stuff from him. Tells the story. <clears throat> this is from Josephus's Wars. I'm just going to read several different quotes from him. He says, The whole country through which they fled was filled with the slaughter. The Jordan could not be passed over by reason of the dead bodies that were in it. The lake Asphaltites, which is the Dead Sea, this is what he's calling it, was also full of dead bodies that were carried down into it by the river. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps, one upon another, was, ho- was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench. Children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner. 
The ground did nowhere appear visible because of the dead bodies that lay on it. But the soldiers went over heaps of those bodies as they ran upon such as fled from them. Nor was there any place in the city that had no dead bodies in it, but what was entirely covered with those that were killed either by the famine or the rebellion. And all was full of the dead bodies. Accordingly, the multitude of those that therein perished exceeded all the destructions that either men or God ever wrought upon the world. And thus was Jerusalem taken in the second year of the reign of Vespasian on the eighth day of the month. And thus ended the siege of Jerusalem. Literally millions and millions of people were slaughtered in this war between Israel and Rome. In so much that in the aftermath of that, that war, there just weren't, weren't the resources available for them to bury all of the bodies before the birds of the air came and picked the carcasses clean. And just reading Josephus' accounts, he's not a Christian, he's just a Jewish historian captured early on in the conflict. And so he gets to be, he gets a front row seat to all of the conflict. He's just recounting what it was like as they went into Jerusalem and bodies are everywhere. The whole land is covered. Just reading that ought to awaken our minds to what was prophesied to happen, what, just five years from the time that John is writing this revelation and sending it out uh, to the seven churches there in Asia Minor. I think that one phrase that I read to you, uh, children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner. That reminds me of this language here, verse uh, 18, to eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, of horses and their riders, and of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That means young and old, children and old men alike, just as Josephus writes it in his account. This literally took place in history. It was a visible and historical demonstration to Israel, to those who pierced Christ, of what rejection of Jesus results in spiritually and ultimately. But the judgment of God upon sinful men here is not the only story that's told in Revelation 19. For we have here also a revelation of God's judgment upon demonic forces, those demonic forces that were behind Rome and the religious leaders in Israel. The text mentions the beast and the false prophet. Verse 19, And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with it, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So just historically speaking, we've, we've talked about who the beast is. It's, it's Rome and, and the false prophet. It is the religious leader's in Israel, but we've also mentioned along the way that there are demonic forces behind these, these two entities. There's a demonically possessed emperor and there are demonically influenced leaders over Israel. And these two demons who had been let out of the abyss earlier in the Revelation, if you're just taking notes on that, Revelation 11, 7, Revelation 17, 8, we'll tell you about that. They were let out of the, the abyss, out of this prison of the heart of the earth in order to set in motion the things that were going to lead to this, this massacre of reprobate souls. They are now captured. These demons are, according to the text, 
and thrown alive into the lake of fire. And this demonstrates that not only is Christ sovereign over all things terrestrial, but he's also sovereign over all things celestial. The entire created universe is subject to the sovereign almighty power of King Jesus. Now, just to give you some little side instruction here, this lake of fire, it's going to come up again later on in the Revelation, and we'll talk more about it specifically when we come to those passages. But for now, I do want you to recognize something. This lake of fire is different from what the New Testament terms Hades and the abyss and the pit of the abyss. And Peter, I think it's called Tartarus. Uh, the Old Testament terms this Sheol. It's, it's the grave. All of those terms refer to various aspects of that one temporal prison where the souls of dead men and certain demons are shut up unto final judgment. So when people would die under the old, in the Old Testament, they would, they would go to the heart of the earth according to the way the Jews are thinking about uh, the afterlife. And there was, a, there was a compartment for torment, the abyss. There was Abraham's bosom where the righteous would go and wait for the salvation that was to be brought by Christ. Even some demons, though, are locked in the, the abyss, according to the scriptures, because they're just too vile, too uncontrollable uh, in the world. There's, we live in a very spiritual world. This is how the Bible tells us about the, the, the creation that God has made. And so we have here this Hades, this grave, this hell, and it's distinct from the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the physical manifestation of the eternal wrath of God it's never going to come to an end. And by the time we come to the revelation, end of the revelation, you're going to see that into the lake of fire, death, the final enemy, and Hades, that prison that is now at the heart of the earth where demons are kept, where the souls of men who are unrighteous are kept waiting the, the judgment of the final day. All of that is going to be thrown into the physical manifestation of God's eternal wrath, which is known as the lake of fire. It's an eternal place of punishment for, for demons. Christ tells us that it was made for the devil and for his angels. And reprobate men are going to share their, have their share of that. All of the evil in creation will one day be banished to the wrath of God, the fires of his wrath known as the lake of fire. For right now, as far as I can tell from the scripture, there's only two creatures that are in the lake of fire the beast, and the false prophet, these two particular demons. They've served their purpose in inciting this, uh, this global rebellion against God's covenant breakers to bring this wrath. And so God throws them into their final destiny. And their judgment here is just a foreshadowing for us of the final judgment that is to come for all, for all mankind. And from that judgment, there is no escape. And we hope for any man, any woman, any child is to answer that invitation that we talked about last week and the week before now. Amen. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That invitation goes out every time we preach the gospel. Every time you've heard the gospel shared in your life, every time you share it with your neighbors, every time you are communicating with your children, that, that gospel call is going out. Blessed are those who will hear that gospel call and who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb because they will escape 
the just judgment that we all deserve. This condemnation that's coming upon the wicked, that's coming upon the reprobate, it is important that we as believers recognize we deserve it. We are worthy of that. That we will find ourselves not in the lake of fire when it's all said and done to the praise of God's glorious justice. That should dumbfound us. That is the amazing thing. We won't sit, I'm confident, we won't sit in eternity praising God for his mercy, astonished that so many are over there suffering. We will fully understand the suffering of the wicked when we see the glory of the king. What will be so amazing is why did we receive such mercy? Why did we receive such grace? And here is the invitation being extended now. Believe, trust in the lamb, trust in Christ. His sacrifice is sufficient. We sing about it week after week. We share in the table of the Lord, reminding us of what he's done for us. <coughs> Don't forget the Lamb of God. Don't forget the invitation. It's the only way to escape this certain condemnation that is coming upon the whole cosmos. So we have here, on either sides of this chiasm, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great supper of God. One is we get to sit at the table with Christ for all of eternity, enjoying him, contemplating him, living in new heavens and new earth, enjoying fellowship one with another. It's a glorious life. It's eternal life in Christ. And on the other side of that is condemnation, reprobation, a a continual hatred of God. I would, the way I read the scriptures, I think if these people were given the opportunity to be let out of the, the abyss, out of the lake of fire in the end, they still would choose to stay there because they hate God. That's what we are in and of ourselves. But those are the two options that are laid out for us in this chiasm of two suppers. And so we come to the centerpiece, to the dividing line himself, to Christ, and to his conquest. Verse 11 Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this particular portion of the vision is not all that difficult to interpret of the dozen or so commentaries that I read, and I do read some dispensationalist commentaries along the way just for the fun of it. Uh, There was very little variation in in terms of just what is signified here by this rider on the white horse. Everybody basically agrees on it. The, The big question that hangs over this is when. So as far as the what is concerned, this is Christ. Christ is seen riding forth on a white horse to conquer all things. And we know that this is Christ because of the various 
names that are used to describe him. He's called faithful and true. That's shown up previously in the Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. He's called the Word of God. This is what John calls Jesus in his gospel account. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos Theos, right? It's the Word of God. And then King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's already shown up in the Revelation in chapter 17 and verse 14. So we know this is Christ. We also know this is Christ by other symbolic language that's used of him here in this passage. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire. This has been in chapter 1 and verse 14. The armies of heaven are following him, just like they were in chapter 14, just like they were in chapter 17. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Chapter 1 verse 16 is a cross-reference for that. And of course, we don't want to forget the Old Testament background to this. Uh, Zechariah 10, if you want to write down some cross-reference notes, you definitely need to read Zechariah 10 and following. Especially verse 3, it talks about Jesus riding forth, or the Messiah riding forth, uh, on his majestic steed to do battle. So there's some Old Testament cross-reference there as well. Isaiah uh, chapter 63, this is Jesus dealing with the false shepherds and himself coming to shepherd his people to triumph. It talks about him treading the winepress of God's wrath and having a robe that is soaked in the blood of his enemies, Isaiah 63. And then, of course, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is just a grand, triumphant psalm about the victory of Christ and the nations hating the ruling, reigning Christ and God setting his king up to rule and reign anyway and then challenging all of the leaders of the earth bow before the Son or be crushed by Him. All of these things are language that is brought out here in this text so that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is Christ. Everybody agrees on that. All millennialists, uh, post-millennialists, pre-millennialists, dispensationalists, everybody agrees. This is Jesus. He's riding forth to judge, to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, specifically here the righteous, the elect, and the wicked, the reprobate, and to make war, interestingly, this is not the common word for combat war. This is the word from which you get the word polemics. It does mean to contend, but it's more of a legal uh, contention. He's riding forth to make war and to tread the winepress of God's wrath. He does this in righteousness as the faithful and true word of God. The sword from his mouth, it also is the word of God, and his reign is absolute. That's what we're getting from this passage. By the time it's said and done, men will have one and only one choice as they are confronted by this king. From Psalm 2, kiss the son, serving him with fear, rejoicing before him with trembling, or perish in the way by his wrath. Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12. His going forth, I love Psalm 110, his going forth will be unstoppable. That ending of Psalm 110, he will drink from the brook, by the way, gives this imagery of a warrior going out to battle and he's going to stop and he's going he's to refresh himself from a brook and he's not going to stop until he's conquered every single enemy. The last enemy, of course, to be defeated by Christ is death. So we have this picture of Christ riding forth triumphant. Everybody agrees on the what. The only real question is when? When did this begin? When will it begin? Now, just like last time when we were talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, most commentators put this portion of the vision exclusively at the second coming of Christ. 
as if this vision of the rider on the white horse is the second coming of Christ himself. If that's where you land, fine, no problem. But just like last time, I just disagree. For me, as I try to keep all these things in their immediate context, I think this is something that has to be seen multifacetedly. We believe that it began officially at the ascension of Christ. We believe that it was seen physically, historically, at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. I believe that we have to see it as occurring continually throughout this age. And I think we have to see it finally and fully realized at the second coming of Christ. I think, and that's my opinion, I'm clarifying that because a lot of people disagree on this, but it is my opinion, it's it's my well-studied, well-prayed-through, well-thought-out opinion, but it is my opinion that Scripture demands that we see this vision of Christ in all of these multifaceted ways, for we've already seen in our study of this that that coming on the clouds of heaven is not the second coming, but is the ascension. It is Christ ascending to the ancient of days to receive the kingdom. This, we've been telling you since we saw the throne room vision, this happened at the ascension of Christ. Christ goes back to the Father. He receives uh, the kingdom, and now he's been ruling and reigning ever since, physically, tangibly, in the universe. And so this began officially when Christ ascends. But of course, the reign of Christ is seen visibly, historically, just like Jesus promised to those high priests as they were trying him. He says, henceforth, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of glory. He was telling those priests who were condemning him to death, who were about to crucify him, you are going to see that I am who I say I am. I am the King Eternal. And he was looking forward to this day when his judgment would be manifested visibly, tangibly. The Jews sought a sign and they got one. The visible sign of God's judgment upon the covenant breakers in Israel. This was manifested physically, historically in the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and in the immediate aftermath. Furthermore, we see this triumph as continually because that same vision in Daniel that's unpacked in chapter 2 and also in 7 is of a kingdom that is expanding slowly across time. Listen, if you want to take the time this week, I think it would do you well to go and read Zechariah 10 through the end and start with Isaiah chapter 62 and read through the end. It sounds like it's, it's going up and down and up and down between victory and, and defeat and victory and defeat, but that's precisely what we should anticipate in this vision of Christ's kingdom expanding over all the earth. It's not something that Christ comes and he brings in a day. It's something that God affects across time, across the centuries, across the millennia, as we go out proclaiming the eternal gospel to the nation. So it is important that we see this triumphant ride of Christ triumphing over the enemies, not just as happening at a particular point in history and then without any more effects, but as something that is continually being accomplished across time, finally culminating in the second coming of Christ. Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the final enemy that's going to be defeated by this victorious Christ is death. And until death is defeated, and there has been a bodily resurrection of all of the saints, and there's final judgment, this triumphant ride of Christ is happening. And so I think it's important that we see all of these things. Now again, if you're stuck on this is out in the future for us, that's fine. 
So long as you are seeing with us that this is pointing to the the ultimate victory of Christ over all things so that we look at it and we get hope from it and we see that we are supposed to be occupying, at least in some sense, in in this victory that Christ gives to us. Now, what does this mean for us? That's how I want to wrap this up. Where's my uh, clicker for these slides? Because I want to show you some things in the text itself. It's obvious from this um, passage that at the very center of it is Christ uh, ruling and reigning over all things right now. And I'm not sure if you all can see this, but I do want you to at least be able to recognize it here. I've broken down verses 12 through 16 for you. And I want you to see that at the center of this chiasm section is another chiasm in and of itself. So just for your reference, 12 and 16, they correspond. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. These are things taken right out of Isaiah. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We know that the sword from his mouth is the word of God. Hebrews uh, tells us that. And then right in the center of this is this. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now commentators are all over the place on who these people are. Are they heavenly armies? It certainly is possible. Maybe they're cherubim and seraphim who are going out, helping the elect as they carry out God's mission in the world. That certainly would track with the text because if you go back and you'll read that Isaiah, I'm sorry, that Zechariah 10 passage, Zechariah 10, 3, Messiah is described as riding forth on his majestic horse unto battle. And the Septuagint uses the same word here the polemics. He's going out on this polemia, this to make war. And so it could be that the saints are here typified in the right, the white horse, because that's what Zechariah makes him out to be. God is going to bless Judah and use his elect people as the, the steed of the Messiah carrying his victory to the world. So that's possible. And these who are the armies of heaven could be the angelic hosts who are attending to the saints as they go forth to make the gospel effective. That, that would track. Um, others say that this, especially those who would push the, the rider of the white horse out into the future, they would say that this is all of the saints. We've all been raptured out. We've just had a great meal around the table for the last seven years as tribulation was visited on the whole world. And now we've gotten up from the table and we're all coming with Christ and he's about to burn everything down and start the millennial reign. So these are the saints the full complement of the saints who are riding forth with Christ. That's fine. I think, though, just in tracking with how this vision has been unfolding so far, I think this is us. Um, We saw the 144,000 sealed back in chapter 6. Then we came forward into chapter 14, and we saw the 144,000 up on Mount Zion with Christ they were, the, they were like virgins who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And then as we tracked on through chapter 14, they were those that God used to proclaim the gospel, the eternal gospel 
to all the nations and tribes and tongues in the world. So they are the first. They're preserved through the judgment according to how this vision tracks. They're preserved alive through the judgment so that on the other side of the destruction of the temple, all, almost all other believers throughout the empire are, are massacred except this remnant that God has preserved. They go proclaiming the gospel so that within a century, the gospel has permeated every country, every nation within the Roman Empire itself. The gospel has gone forth again. I, I think this is those 144,000 and it's us in this age riding forth with Christ. And so the implication, if this is true, if what I'm, if how I'm reading this and tracking what, how we're supposed to be understanding this, then this victory of Christ as he rides forth, it means something for us. Because at the very center of this conquest is God using his people to carry the gospel to the world. Again, we go back to that, that passage where, or verse 11, <clears throat> and I saw the heaven open and behold, a white horse the one sitting on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges. This is not necessarily condemnation. It's a distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked. He's actually judging. He's separating sheep from goats, as it were, and he's making war. This is not actually a combat. This, this accords with what Paul will tell us. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We're engaged in a spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the wickedness of this age, right? That's, that's, that's the warfare that we are engaged in. And that tracks with exactly what is being said here. And so we are that instrument that Christ is using now to proclaim the gospel to the world. And this, this passage gives us such hope as we look to it. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. Now this, this is supposed to encourage you as a believer, especially for those seven, those churches in the seven churches of Asia Minor. Earlier in the Revelation, we've seen that the, the dragon has got seven diadems on his head. Now, diadems are crowns that are royal crowns of authority. The crowns that are typically given to believers are Stephanos crowns. They're victor's crowns. Diadems are reserved for royalty for those who have power. The dragon, he's got seven crowns on his head. We've also seen the beast. He's got ten crowns on his head, denoting the, the authority that, that Rome had over all of its provinces. Well, by the time we come to the end of this vision, the beast himself has been captured. Christ has his ten crowns on his head. By the time we come to chapter 20, the dragon's going to have been captured and bound. Christ has his seven crowns on his head. This ruler has many diadems on his head, which says to us, our king is undefeatable. Every time he meets up with an enemy, he conquers that enemy. As his people go forward to proclaim the eternal gospel, they will be victorious. They may suffer defeats on earth in the flesh. We will suffer. We will be tried. We will be persecuted, but Christ himself is sovereign over all things. Just like Wayne, as he prayed earlier, Christ is sovereign over all of our circumstances. He's sovereign over everything that we are going through at any given time. He's sovereign over who's gathered today and who's not gathered today. Christ is sovereign over all things. And this, his head having many diadems on it, innumerable crowns upon it, shows the universality of his dominion. He has a name written 
that no one knows but himself. I don't take this to be a name that we can't know. I take this in the sense of Exodus. If we go back to Exodus, you've, you've probably read that in chapter 6 where God comes to Moses and he says, Go tell Israel, Yahweh has sent you to you, sent me to you. By the name Yahweh, I've not made myself known to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's obviously not true because throughout Genesis, men were calling themselves by the name of Yahweh. And Abraham was going around building altars to Yahweh his God. So he, they knew the name in their head. They knew, they knew what the name was. But there was a new level of knowledge that was going to be gained by Israel in that exodus. There was a new covenant relationship that they were going to see in promise fulfillment that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had only ever known and promises made. And so there was this new level of knowledge. I think that's the same idea that, that's, that's portrayed here, especially in light of the, the chiastic structure here where um, verse 12 is answered later on. So that he has a name that no one knows, but also this, his name written is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so there's something about this Christ that we come to know as we live this Christian life in him, with him. As we go out and we proclaim the gospel, as you raise your kids, as we come to church together and we, we recognize more and more through all of our suffering, through all of our troubles and trials and tribulations, through our defeats and, our, and his raising us up again and again and again, we come to know just how truly sovereign he is, just how truly almighty he is, just how good his, redempt, his redemption is. There is a name that at the beginning we don't fully know, but it is, it is the same with, with Job. Job comes to the end of all of his suffering. I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear. This is how I knew you when we started out, Lord. But on the other side of this suffering, on the other side of this conquest, my eye sees you. I see who you truly are. I think that's the imagery that we're supposed to be getting here. We are engaged with Christ. And the more that we engage with Christ in this mission, the sweeter our knowledge of him becomes the sweeter our redemption becomes, the greater our rejoicing in judgment and mercy becomes. It really is sweeter, as the song says. It's sweeter with every passing day, sweeter as the days go by. The more we are engaged with Christ, the richer and the sweeter is our experience of who he is in all of his glory and transcendent power. We see then also the, just the centrality of the word. That thing by which Christ conquers the nations, through which he rules with a rod of iron, is the word of God. That's the name by which he is called, and it corresponds to this verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is something I think needs to be at the heart of this. If you take nothing else today, you need to take this. I say it all the time. You need to know the word. There is no triumph of the gospel in our generation apart from God's word. Amen. If you do not know God's word, you have no grounding for any of the moral arguments that God is calling us to, to make and to assert over this world. People are going to die. They're going to be standing before God one day in judgment. But if we don't tell them, if we don't tell them, then they're going to go there and face judgment, never having heard the, the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. 
And you're only going to be able to tell them if you know the word. I was listening to Matt Walsh and Joe Rogan this past week talking about marriage. Matt Walsh, a Roman Catholic, who was dead set he's not going to use his faith as an argument as he argues for moral principles, was going back and forth with Joe Rogan on his program about marriage. Matt Walsh was defending traditional marriage as being the morally right choice. And, and Joe Rogan kept pushing back. Why does it matter to you if a homosexual couple gets married? Why does it matter to you? What is it hurting you? Is your marriage any less if these get married, if these have kids? And Walsh just kept pushing back with pragmatic arguments. What we have to be prepared to say to a world who asks a reason is God created us for his glory. And God created marriage for his glory. That's the only grounding we have. If the word of God is not true, there is no reason for marriage. If the word of God is not true, there is no reason for monogamy and sexual relationship between a husband and wife. If God is not going to judge sinners, then what is the reason? There's no reason that two men shouldn't have a relationship. There's no reason that two women shouldn't have a relationship. If God has not created us for his glory, for his purposes, there is no reason. And you and I have to go out into a world and know what God has said. And we have to have that as the grounding reason. Young people. And I was growing up, we were fed this purity doctrine that marriage would be better if you would save yourself for marriage sexually. And that, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I don't know. But I do know that what we're called to in Christ is to honor Christ with our bodies. Right. That's the reason not to have sex before marriage. That's the reason to, to find a woman and to marry her and to have children with her and to be faithful to your marriage. It's for the glory of God. That's the reason. It's not practical necessarily. It's not pragmatic, although everything that God commands is for our good. But at the bottom, it's for his glory. It's because he's created us for his glory. It's because he's going to judge sinners. He will judge the wicked. He will judge those who dishonor marriage. He will judge those who dishonor their bodies with mankind and all sorts of transgenderism and homosexuality. He will judge sinners. He will judge gossips and liars and thieves and adulterers idolaters, he will judge sinners. He is riding forth to conquer. And we have to know God's word. I remind you of the message that we preached last week. The bride is granted to clothe herself in white. The white garments of the bride are the righteous deeds of the saints. At the center of that is this vision of Christ is his word, is his power. If we are going to find ourselves not on the side of judgment, but on the side of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we have to not only trust Christ, but demonstrate that we are trusting in Christ by the lives that we live, by the word that we confess, by the truth that we uphold in our hearts. All of this is central to the gospel's proclamation in the world and to the world believing the witness that she will hear from us. This is God's word. He is the dividing line. You need to know him. You need to know his word. Let's pray.